Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Go check out Morbidly Beautiful right now for all your pop culture horror needs, from reviews to interviews, top ten lists, and, well, everything in between. Now, the last two weeks we have spent looking at fictional killers. But in a real-world sense, what if... Freddy Krueger, what if Michael Myers actually existed in our reality? Well, we can't put those names alone. There's one more deserving of this look. At least one more. And this young boy, who grew up to be a giant of a man, was born on June 13th, 1946, in a small town called Crystal Lake. This is Jason Voorhees. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. There's a quote that sums up the legend of Jason Voorhees incredibly well. It goes as such, quote, there is a legend around here, a killer buried but not dead, a curse on Crystal Lake, a death curse, Jason Voorhees' curse. They say he died as a boy, but he keeps coming back. Few have seen him and lived. Some have even tried to stop him. No one can. People forget he's down there, waiting. As I mentioned, Jason was born in the small town of Crystal Lake on June 13, 1946, to his parents Elias Voorhees and Pamela Voorhees. From a young age, poor Jason was afflicted with various deformities and other disabilities, such as hydrocephalus, an abnormally large head, and other learning and mental disabilities. For one reason or another, Elias Voorhees was not in the picture and therefore the raising of young Jason was left to his mother, Pamela. She kept her son quite isolated from the community, not letting him attend school and educating him in her home on the outskirts of Crystal Lake. Due to his mental deficiencies, his education was indeed quite limited, but the one thing he did learn was to never question his mother. He did indeed as well obey all of his mother's orders, grasping that concept that his life was going to be difficult, if not impossible, without his mother's guidance. His extreme obedience to his mother would manifest itself in strange ways after puberty. Even after Pamela died, Jason could imagine her talking to him from beyond the grave, or so reports would have it. In 1957, Pamela was hired by Mr. and Mrs. Christie as a cook for their summer camp. Having no living relatives to board Jason with, and unable to afford a nanny, she took him to the camp with her. Jason had actually been with his mom most of the time instead of with the other kids, leading them to believe he wasn't very smart. So, of course, what did kids do? They began to bully him. While being bullied by the other campers, Jason attempted to escape from his tormentors, but the cruel children caught up to him on the dock and threw Jason into the lake. 
where he was believed to have drowned. His last words were for his mother, then for anyone in earshot to help him. The counselors were supposed to be on the lookout for this type of misbehavior, but were distracted by casual sex. Naturally, the Christies ordered the camp closed. Police combed the lake but failed to find Jason's body. Interrogation of the counselors led the authorities to conclude that Jason's death was indeed accidental, and no one was charged with his death. In 1958, it was again opened on schedule, that is Camp Crystal Lake. Pamela, who was mad with grief, murdered Barry Jackson and Claudette Hayes, the counselors she blamed for Jason's drowning. Pamela, however, was never suspected of the murders, but unlike Jason's drowning, autopsies of the two teenagers clearly showed they had died as a result of homicide, and the camp was promptly closed. Yet again though, the Christies reopened the camp in 1962, but the discovery of arsenic in the water on the camp's grounds caused the summer session to be cancelled. Throughout the 1960s and 70s, there were random fires on the property, and the fire department could not come up with a plausible reason. It was never proven, but strongly suggested that Pamela lived close to the camp and had engaged in these acts of sabotage in order to ensure the camp remained unattended and that no child suffered the same fate as Jason. All of these tragedies led to the abandonment of the summer camp being nicknamed Camp Blood by the locals, who came to believe the area was cursed. Now, despite struggling in the lake from the prank, Jason did not drown. By some means, Jason managed to make it to land safely. Having no idea how to seek help, he seemingly decided his only action was to wait for his mother to find him. He either built a home or managed to occupy an abandoned shanty in the woods. During these years, Pamela never found out where he was, nor did they see each other until her death. Presumably, Jason came to believe that his mother had died and that he was on his own. He managed to live off the land, subsiding on edible plants in the forests surrounding Crystal Lake, or hunting small animals, or even by pilfering food where he could. He also made use of the abandoned summer camp to strip it for makeshift goods, or made very limited forays into civilization to procure supplies. Jason had managed to achieve independence from his mother and survive on his own as a full-grown man, albeit in a crude and very haphazard manner. Stephen Christie, the son of Camp Crystal Lake founders David and Louise Christie, tried to reopen the camp. In 1978, he had plunked down $25,000, hiring various carpenters, electricians, masons, and plumbers to go to Camp Crystal Lake and renovate the property. He also hired several teenagers from out of town to assist him in the refurbishment, with the deadline that by the time the summer of 1979 came to be, the camp would once again be open for business. Steve went to urban areas and made contact with community centers offering lower-class inner-city families a chance for their children to enjoy the great outdoors for a summer. Enraged by Steve's actions, Pamela murdered him and almost all of his employees, with only Alice Hardy surviving. Ultimately, Alice decapitated Pamela with a machete after a brief struggle on the lake's shore. After killing Pamela, Alice collapsed from exhaustion and stress into a canoe and fell asleep as it drifted out onto the lake. The following Saturday morning, Alice imagined police cars coming to the camp property to investigate the murders, only for herself to be pulled into the water 
by Reverend from Jason's prepubescent self. Alice greeted Sergeant Tierney, who said that they found several corpses of adults on the property and that Officer Dorf and another man rescued her from drowning. Alice was then admitted to the hospital and treated for hypothermia. When Alice asks about Jason, Tierney chalks it up to a hallucination from her recent ordeal and replies, quote, Miss, we did not find any boy, causing Alice to remark that Jason is still out there. After his mother's murder spree, Jason, having witnessed his mother's death, grabbed her sweater, pants, severed head, and the machete that killed her and returned to his shack with them. He placed the objects on a cruel altar he had constructed as a shrine to his beloved mother. Two months after Pamela's death, Jason soon left the woods and entered the town in search of his mother's killer. Jason somehow tracked Alice down to her apartment, snuck inside, and stabbed her in the head with an ice pick after scaring her by placing his mother's head in her refrigerator. Escaping with Alice's body, Jason placed it at the root of his mother's shrine. Three years after killing Alice, Jason discovered a local teenager named Chris Higgins in the woods and attacked her with a knife, knocking her out in the struggle. Exactly what happened next is unknown, but hours later, Chris woke up at home with no idea how she got there. It wasn't until the summer of 1984 that Jason really came into his own, as you might say, when he learned a new group of teenagers occupying the nearby Pakanak Lodge had taken up residence. Determined to destroy the trespassers, he began to watch the group closely and stalk them to their deaths. In this time, he kills a cop and a young man named Ralph. Jason then proceeded to attack Pakanak Lodge in the middle of the night, murdering the six would-be counselors who had decided to stay behind instead of going into town for one last night of fun. Hiding the counselors' bodies and bringing at least one to his shack, Jason stayed in the lodge, awaiting more victims to present themselves. When Paul and his assistant Ginny Field returned, Jason knocked Paul out and then chased Ginny through the woods and all the way to his shack, where she discovered the shrine erected to Pamela Voorhees. Aware of Jason's history, Ginny donned Pamela's sweater and tricked Jason into thinking she was his mother, distracting him long enough for Paul to appear. As Paul and Jason fought, Ginny grabbed the machete used to kill Mrs. Voorhees and slammed it into Jason's shoulder, with the blow knocking him out. Despite the severity of his injuries, Jason recovered and followed Ginny and Paul back to the Pakanak Lodge where an unmasked Jason crashed through the window and attacked Ginny, causing her to black out. The next day, a bewildered Ginny was found by paramedics, but Jason and Paul were nowhere to be found. After some time, and reaching a small store, Jason killed the owners and stole some new clothes, then made way to the Higgins Haven, a vacation home of his would-be victim, Chris, where he spent the night the next day, Jason attacked two bikers before moving on to Chris's friends, killing them one by one, acquiring his infamous hockey mask from a boy by the name of Shelley Finkelstein, and he used it to replace his burlap sack, which he had earlier lost. When Chris and her boyfriend Rick, who had been out, returned to Higgins Haven, Jason killed Rick and gave chase to Chris who eventually recognized Jason as the man who attacked her two years ago. Becoming trapped in the barn with Jason, Chris 
was able to split Jason's head open with an axe after being distracted for a brief moment. After being momentarily stunned by the axe, Jason managed to stumble forward and tried to grab Chris before falling over, seemingly dead. The next day, a hysterical Chris was found by the police and led away, ranting about a dream in which Jason was still alive and being attacked by a decayed Pamela out on the lake. That night, Jason and his ten victims were taken to the Wessex County Morgue, where Jason was revived. He killed the coroner and a nurse before making his way back to Camp Crystal Lake, murdering a hitchhiker on his way. Reaching the home of 12-year-old Tommy Jarvis and his family by the next night, Jason murdered a group of teenagers vacationing next door, as well as Mrs. Jarvis and Rob Dyer, the brother of one of Jason's victims at the Pakanak Lodge, who had been looking for Jason in order to avenge his sister's death. Going after Tommy and his sister Trish, Jason's rampage was brought to an end when Tommy, using some newspaper clippings belonging to Rob as a reference, altered his appearance to resemble a young Jason, which in turn distracted the killer and allowed Tommy to strike him in the head with Rob's machete, causing Jason to topple over forward, pushing the blade even deeper into his skull. As Tommy and Trish embraced, Tommy noticed that Jason was showing faint signs of life. He grabbed the machete and began hacking away at Jason's body, screaming, Die! 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 Over and over and over again. The Jarvis siblings were found a short time later, and Jason's body was buried in Eternal Peace Cemetery. Although most local officials were apparently misinformed and believed that the killer had been cremated, killing 30 teenagers and adults in the spree of only a few days in the summer of 1984 was Jason's bloodiest year ever. How somebody survives a machete to the head several times is, well, beyond natural explanation. But was Jason truly finished? Well, it's hard to say. Because it wasn't until a few years later that, like any good serial killer, a copycat sprung up. It was five years after killing Jason that Tommy Jarvis, who had been in and out of institutions since his encounter with Jason, was sent to Pinehurst Halfway House. Shortly after Tommy's arrival, residents of the area started being killed off at an alarming rate. The brutality and seemingly random nature of the murders caused the authorities to fear that Jason had somehow returned. It was a modern day mystery. Did Jason return from the dead to seek revenge on Tommy for, well, killing him? Or was it something else? Something a little more real? A little more natural? It was soon discovered that the one responsible for the new killing spree was a paramedic named Roy Burns, who had subsequently snapped and begun copycatting Jason after the death of his son at Pinehurst. Once again, Tommy came to the rescue and killed Roy in self-defense. However, due to Roy's killing spree, it reawakened his deep-seated fear of Jason. Tommy had already become unhinged and suffered from visual and auditory hallucinations, and he had a psychotic fit, and nearly became another Jason copycat. He donned a hockey mask that greatly resembled, or somehow actually was, Roy's mask, brandishing a knife and coming close to murdering his friend, Pam Roberts. Tommy was put back in an institution after nearly killing Pam, but he was released back into society in June of 1990. Tommy would go on to believe that destroying Jason's body would cure his psychosis and allow him to move on. 
and so he went to the Eternal Peace Cemetery with his friend Alan Hawes and dug up Jason's corpse with the plan to cremate it. Unfortunately, the sight of Jason's body caused Tommy to have an episode and attack the rotted husk with a metal fence post. He calmed down after several stabbings of the body, and Tommy left the fence post embedded in Jason's chest, which led to Jason accidentally being resurrected when the post acted as a lightning rod, attracting several bolts created by an oncoming storm. Jason rose from the grave and kills Hawes after sending Tommy running. He then grabbed the hockey mask that Tommy had left behind. Once again, Jason rose from the grave to take revenge on those who had wronged him. Now that does it for part one of Jason Voorhees. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also leave a review on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash horrorshots. Any five-star reviews left on any of these sites will be read out on the podcast, so if you want a shout-out, that's the best way to do it. Also, feel free to follow along on social media, on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd or Instagram at OminousOriginsPod. Be sure to check out my Twitch streams as well on Mondays through Fridays, with the exception of Tuesdays, starting at around 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Be playing horror games and talking horror and talking, well, pretty much everything. You can find me on Twitch at twitch.com or twitch.tv slash muskyfox. That's fox spelled F-A-U-X. So until next week. <laughs>